Chapter Ten of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten Times That Tried Women's Souls. Bitterly disillusioned, Susan, as usual, found comfort in action. She carried to the New York legislature early in 1867 her objections to the 14th Amendment in a petition from the American Equal Rights Association, signed by Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and herself. People generally were critical of the amendment, many fearing it would too readily reinstate rebels as voters and she hoped to block ratification by capitalizing on this dissatisfaction. She saw no disloyalty to Negroes in this, for she regarded the amendment as utterly inadequate. This protest made, she turned her attention to New York's Constitutional Convention, which provided an unusual opportunity for writing women's suffrage into the new Constitution. First, she sought an interview with Horace Greeley, hoping to regain his support, which was more important than ever, since he had been chosen a delegate to this convention. When she and Mrs. Stanton asked him for space in the Tribune to advocate woman's suffrage as well as Negro suffrage, he emphatically replied, No, you must not get up any agitation for that measure help us get the word white out of the constitution this is the negro's hour your turn will come next convinced that this was also woman's hour susan disregarded his opinions and his threats and circulated woman's suffrage petitions in all parts of the state she won the support of the handsome highly respected george william curtis now editor of harper's magazine and also a convention delegate and of the popular henry ward beecher and garrett smith the sponsorship of the cause by these men helped mightily new york women sent in petitions with hundreds of signatures but the republican party was at work cracking its whip and horace greeley was appointed chairman of the committee on the right of suffrage both susan and mrs stanton spoke at the constitutional convention's hearing on women's suffrage susan with her usual forthrightness answering the many questions asked by the delegates spreading consternation among them by declaring that women would eventually serve as jurors and be drafted in time of war assuming women unable to bear arms for their country the delegates smugly linked the ballot and the bullet together and horace greeley gleefully asked the two women if you vote are you ready to fight instantly susan replied yes mr greeley just as you fought in the late war at the point of a goose quill then Turning to the other delegates, she reminded them that several hundred women, disguised as men, had fought in the Civil War, and instead of being honored for their services and paid, they had been discharged in disgrace. 
confident that Horace Greeley would sooner or later fall back on his oft-repeated trite remark, the best woman I know do not want to vote, Susan had asked Mrs. Greeley to roll up a big petition in Westchester County, and believing heartily in woman's suffrage, she had complied. This gave Susan and Mrs. Stanton a trump card to play, should Horace Greeley present an adverse report, as they were informed he would do. In Albany, to hear the report, these two conspirators gloated over their plan as they surveyed the packed galleries, and noted the many reporters who would jump at a bit of spicy news to send their papers. Just before Horace Greeley was to give his report, George William Curtis announced with dignity and assurance, Mr. President, I hold in my hand a petition from Mrs. Horace Greeley and three hundred other women, citizens of Westchester, asking that the word male be stricken from the Constitution. Ripples of amusement ran through the audience, and reporters hastily took notes, as Horace Greeley, the top of his head red as a beet, looked up with anger at the galleries, and then, in a thin, squeaky voice, and with as much authority as he could muster, declared, "'Your committee does not recommend an extension of the elective franchise to women.' As a result, New York's new constitution enfranchised only male citizens. Horace Greeley justified his opposition to women's suffrage in a letter to Moncure D. Conway. The keynote of my political creed is the axiom that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. I sought information from different quarters and practically all agreed in the conclusion that the women of our state do not choose to vote. Individuals do, at least three-fourths of the sex do not. I accepted their choice as decisive, just as I reported in favor of enfranchising the blacks because they do wish to vote. The few may not, but the many do, and I think they should control the situation— it seems but fair to add that female suffrage seems to me to involve the balance of the family relation as it has hitherto existed. Horace Greeley never forgave Susan and Mrs. Stanton for humiliating him in the Constitutional Convention or for the headlines in the evening papers which coupled his adverse report with his wife's petition. When they met again in New York a few weeks later, at one of Alice Carey's popular evening receptions, he ignored their friendly greeting and brusquely remarked, You two ladies are the most maneuvering politicians in the state of New York. While Susan's work in New York State was at its height, appeals for help had reached her from Republicans in Kansas where, in November 1867, two amendments would be voted upon, enfranchising women and Negroes. Unable to go to Kansas herself at that time, or to spare Elizabeth Stanton, she rejoiced when Lucy Stone consented to speak throughout Kansas 
and when she and Lucy, as trustees of the Jackson Fund, outvoting Wendell Phillips, were able to appropriate $1,500 for this campaign. Lucy was soon sending enthusiastic reports to Susan from Kansas, where she and her husband, Henry Blackwell, were winning many friends for the cause. I fully expect we shall carry the state, Lucy confidently wrote Susan. The women here are grand, and it will be a shame past all expression if they don't get the right to vote. But the Negroes are all against us. These men ought not to be allowed to vote before we do, because they will be just so much dead weight to lift. One cloud now appeared on the horizon. Republicans in Kansas began to withdraw their support from the women's suffrage amendment they had sponsored. It troubled Lucy and Susan that the New York Tribune and the Independent, both widely read in Kansas, published not one word favorable to women's suffrage, for these two papers, with their influence and prestige, could readily, they believed, win the ballot for women not only in Kansas, but throughout the nation. Soon the temper of the Republican press changed from indifference to outright animosity, striking at Lucy and Henry Blackwell by calling them free lovers, because Lucy was traveling with her husband as Lucy Stone, and not as Mrs. Henry B. Blackwell. Still, Lucy was hopeful, believing the Democrats were ready to take them up, but she reminded Susan, it will be necessary to have a good force here in the fall, and you will have to come. Never for a moment did the importance of this election in Kansas escape Susan, and her estimate of it was also that of John Stuart Mill, who wrote from England to the sponsor of the Kansas Women's Suffrage Amendment, Samuel N. Wood, If your citizens next November give effect to the enlightened views of your legislature, history will remember one of the youngest states in the civilized world has been the first to adopt a measure of liberation destined to extend all over the earth and to be looked back to as one of the most fertile and beneficial consequence of all improvements yet effected in human affairs. Susan fully expected Kansas to pioneer for women's suffrage just as it had taken its stand against slavery when the rest of the country held back. Her first problem, however, was to raise the money to get herself and Elizabeth Stanton there. The grant from the Jackson Fund had been spent by the Blackwells and Olympia Brown of Michigan, who most providentially volunteered to continue their work when they returned to the East. Olympia Brown, recently graduated from Antioch College and ordained as a minister in the Universalist Church, was a new recruit to the cause. Young and indefatigable, she reached every part of Kansas during the summer, driving over the prairies with the singing Hutchinsons. Olympia Brown's valiant help made waiting in New York easier for Susan, 
as she tried in every way to raise money. Further grants from the Jackson Fund were cut off by an unfavorable court decision, and the trustees of the Hovey Fund, established to further the rights of both Negroes and women, refused to finance a woman's suffrage campaign in Kansas. We are left without a dollar, she wrote State Senator Samuel N. Wood. Every speaker who goes to Kansas must now pay her own expenses out of her own private purse, unless money should come from some unexpected source. I shall run the risk, as I told you, and draw upon almost my last hundred to go. I tell you this, that you may not contract debts under the impression that our association can pay for them, for it cannot. She did find a way to finance the printing of leaflets so urgently needed for distribution in Kansas, soliciting advertisements up and down Broadway during the heat of July and August. She collected enough to pay the printer for 60,000 tracts, with the result that along with the dignified, eloquent speeches of Henry Ward Beecher, Theodore Parker, George William Curtis, and John Stuart Mill went advertisements of Howe sewing machines, Mademoiselle Demarest's millinery and patterns, Browning's washing machines, and Decker pianofortes to attract the people of Kansas. With both New York and Kansas on her mind, Susan had little time to be with her family, although she had often longed to slip out to Rochester for a visit with her mother and Guelma, who had been ill for several months. Finally, she spent a few days with them on her way to Kansas. On the long train journey from Rochester to Kansas, with such a congenial companion as Elizabeth Stanton, she enjoyed every new experience particularly the new palace cars advertised as the finest most luxurious in the world costing forty thousand dollars each the comfortable daytime seats transformed into beds at night and the meals served by solicitous negro waiters were of the greatest interest to those two good housekeepers and the last bit of comfort they were to enjoy for many a day as soon as they reached Kansas, they set out immediately on a two-week speaking tour of the principal towns, and as usual, Susan starred Mrs. Stanton, while she herself acted as general manager, advertising the meetings, finding a suitable hall, sweeping it out if necessary, distributing and selling tracts, and perhaps making a short speech herself. The meetings were highly successful, but traveling by stage and wagon was rugged. Most of the food served them was green with soda or floating in grease, and the hotels were infested with bedbugs. Susan wrote her family of sleepless nights and of picking the tormentors out of their bonnets and the ruffles of their dresses occasionally there was an oasis of cleanliness and good food as when they stopped at the railroad hotel and selina and found it run by mother bickerdyke who 
marching through Georgia with General Sherman, had nursed and fed his soldiers. At such times, Kansas would take on a rosy glow, and Susan could report, We are getting along splendidly. Just the frame of a Methodist church with sidings and roof and rough cottonwood boards for seats was our meeting place last night and a perfect jam it was, with men crowded outside at all the windows. Our tracks do more than half the battle. Reading matter is so very scarce that everybody clutches at a book of any kind. All that great trunkful were sold and given away at our first fourteen meetings, and we, in return, received one hundred and ten dollars, which a little more than paid our railroad fare eight cents per mile, and hotel bills. Our collections thus far fully equal those at the East. I have been delightfully disappointed, for everybody said I couldn't raise money in Kansas meetings. The reputation of both women preceded them to Kansas. Susan had to win her way against prejudice built up by newspaper jibes of past years which had caricatured her as a meddlesome reformer and a sour old maid, but gradually her friendliness, hominess, and sincerity broke down these preconceptions. Kansas soon respected this tall, slender, energetic woman who, as she overrode obstacles, showed a spirit akin to that of the frontiersman. Mrs. Stanton, on the other hand, was welcomed at once with enthusiasm. The fact that she was the mother of seven children, as well as a brilliant orator, opened the way for her. She was good to look at, a queenly woman at fifty-two, with a fresh rosy complexion and carefully curled soft white hair. Her motherliness and refreshing sense of humor built up a bond of understanding with her audiences. People were eager to see her, hear her, talk with her, and entertain her. This preference was obvious to Susan, but it aroused no jealousy. She sent Mrs. Stanton out through the state by mule team to all the small towns and settlements far from the railroad along with their popular and faithful Republican ally, Charles Robinson, first free state governor of Kansas, counting on these two to build up goodwill. In the meantime, making her headquarters in Lawrence, she reorganized the campaign to meet the increasing opposition of the Republican machine against which the continued support of a few prominent Kansas Republicans availed little. As the state was predominantly Republican, the prospects were gloomy, for the Democrats had not yet taken them up, as Lucy Stone had predicted, but still opposed both the Negro and women suffrage amendments. A new liquor law, which it was thought women would support, further complicated the situation, aligning the liquor interests and the German and Irish settlers solidly against votes for women. While Susan was searching desperately for some way of appealing to the Democrats, help came from an unexpected source. 
the St. Louis Suffrage Association urged George Francis Train to come to the aid of women in Kansas, and always ready to champion a new and unpopular cause, he telegraphed his willingness to win the Democratic vote and pay his own expenses. Knowing little about him, except that he was wealthy, eccentric, and interested in developing the Union Pacific Railroad, Susan turned tactfully to her Kansas friends for advice, although she herself welcomed his help. They wired him, The people want you, the woman want you. And he came into the state in a burst of glory, speaking first in Leavenworth and Lawrence to large, curious audiences. A tall, handsome man with curly brown hair and keen gray eyes, flashily dressed in a blue coat with brass buttons, white vest, black trousers, patent leather boots, and lavender kid gloves. He was a sight worth driving miles to see, and he gave his audiences the best entertainment they had had in many a day shouting jingles at them in the midst of his speeches and mercilessly ridiculing the Republicans. Here was none of the boredom of most political speeches, none of the long, sonorous sentences with classical allusions which the big-name orators of the day poured out. His bold statements, his clipped, rapid-fire sentences, held the people's attention whether they agreed with him or not. When he spoke in Leavenworth, the hall was packed with Irishmen who were building the railroad to the west. They hissed when he mentioned woman suffrage, but before long he had won them over, and they cheered when he shook his finger at them and shouted, Every man in Kansas who throws a vote for the Negro and not for women has insulted his mother, his daughter, his sister, and his wife. At once, the Republican press began a campaign of vilification, calling Train a copperhead and ridiculing his eccentricities and conceits. And Eastern Republicans, fearing they had harmed the Negro Amendment in Kansas by their opposition to women's suffrage, tried to make last-minute amends by sending an appeal to Kansas voters to support both amendments. Even Horace Greeley lamely supported them in a Tribune editorial, which Susan read with disgust. It is plain that the experiment of female suffrage is to be tried, and while we regard it with distrust, we are quite willing to see it pioneered by Kansas. She is a young state, and has a memorable history, wherein her women have borne an honorable part. If, then, a majority of them really desire to vote, we, if we lived in Kansas, should vote to give them the opportunity. Upon a full and fair trial, we believe they would conclude that the right of suffrage for women was, on the whole, rather a plague than a profit, and vote to resign it into the hands of their husbands and fathers. These half-hearted appeals were too late, for the political machine in Kansas had already done its work, and Susan, turning her back on such fair-weather friends, 
cultivated the Democrats even more sedulously. When the Democrat who had promised to accompany George Francis Train on a speaking tour failed him, she took his place. When Train demurred at the strenuous task ahead, she announced she would undertake it alone. Always the gallant gentleman, he accompanied her and continued with her through the long, hard weeks of travel in mail and lumber wagons over rough roads, through mud and rain, to the remotest settlements far from the railroads. Because it was a necessity, traveling alone with a gentleman whom she hardly knew troubled her not at all, unconventional though it was. She took charge of the meetings, opening them herself with a short, sincere plea for both the woman and Negro suffrage amendments. And then she introduced George Francis Train, who, no matter how late they arrived or how tiring the day, had changed his wrinkled gray traveling suit for his resplendent platform costume. The expectant crowd never failed to respond with a gasp of surprise and immediately the fun began as train with his wit and his mimicry entertained them calling for their support of women's suffrage and advocating as well some of his own pet ideas such as freeing ireland from british oppression paying our national debt in greenbacks establishing an eight-hour day in industry and even nominating himself for president amused by his dramatics and often amazed at his conceit susan found neither as objectionable as the outright falsehood circulated by opponents of women's suffrage as the days went by with their continued hardships and increasing fatigue she marveled at his unfailing courteousness his pluck and good cheer while he in turn admired her courage her endurance and her zeal for her cause, and between them a bond of respect and loyalty was built up which could not be destroyed by the pressures of later years. During the long hours on the road, he entertained her with the story of his life and his travels, an adventure story of a poor boy who had made good, building clipper ships, introducing American goods in Australia, traveling in India, China, and Russia, promoting street railways in England, and now building the Union Pacific, he had a wealth of information to impart. Their views on the Negro differed sharply. Rating the whole race as inferior and incapable of improvement, he naturally opposed enfranchising Negroes before women. She, on the other hand, had always regarded Negroes as her equals, and in campaigning with Train, she had to make her choice between Negroes and women. She chose women, just as her abolitionist friends in the East had chosen the Negro, and their indifference and opposition to women's suffrage at this crucial time was as unforgivable to her as was his valuation of the Negro to them. They called him a copperhead, remembering his southern wife and his hatred of abolitionists, his vocal resistance to the draft, 
and his demands for immediate unconditional peace. They ignored entirely his defense of the Union in England during the Civil War, when he publicly debated with Englishmen who supported the Confederacy. They abused him in their newspapers, and he, not to be outdone, ridiculed them in his speeches, shouting, Where is Wendell Phillips today? Lost cast everywhere, inconsistent in all things, cowardly in this. Where is Horace Greeley in this Kansas war for liberty? Pitching the woman's suffrage idea out of the convention and bailing out Jeff Davis. Where is William Lloyd Garrison? being patted on the shoulders by his employers, our enemies abroad, for his faithful work in trying to destroy our nation. Where is Henry Ward Beecher, writing a story for Bonner's Ledger? They never forgave him this estimate of them, nor did they forgive Susan for associating herself with him. On one of the last days of the Kansas campaign, while she was driving over the prairie with him, he suddenly asked her why the woman suffrage people did not have a paper of their own. Not lack of brains, but lack of money, she tersely replied. They talked for a while about the good such a paper would do, about the people who should edit and write for it, what name it should have. Then he said simply, I will give you the money. Because a woman's suffrage paper had been her cherished dream for so many years, she did not dare regard this as more than a gallant gesture soon to be forgotten. But to her amazement, that very evening she heard Train announce to his audience, When Miss Anthony gets back to New York, she is going to start a woman's suffrage paper. Its name is to be the Revolution. Its motto men their rights and nothing more, women their rights and nothing less. This paper is to be a weekly, price $2 per year. Its editors, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Parker Pillsbury. Its proprietor, Susan B. Anthony. Let everybody subscribe for it. Election Day brought both Susan and Mrs. Stanton back to Leavenworth, to Daniel's home, to learn the verdict of the people of Kansas. As the returns came in, their hope of seeing Kansas become the first woman suffrage state quickly faded. Neither their amendment nor the Negroes polled enough votes for adoption. Their women's suffrage amendment, however, received only 1,773 votes less than the Republican-sponsored Negro Amendment, and to have accomplished this in a hard-fought, bitter campaign against powerful opponents gave them confidence in themselves and in their judgment of men and events. No longer need they depend upon Wendell Phillips or other abolitionist leaders for guidance. From now on, they would chart their own course. This led, they believed, to Washington, where they must gain support among members of Congress for a federal woman's suffrage amendment. Few, if any, Republicans would help them, but already one Democrat had come forward. George Francis Train 
had offered to pay their expenses if they would join him on a lecture tour on their way east. To Susan, who had to raise every penny spent in her work, this seemed like an answer to prayer, as did his proposal to finance a woman's suffrage paper for them. By this time, their abolitionist friends in the East were writing them indignant letters, blaming the defeat of the Negro Amendment on George Francis Train, and warning them not to link woman's suffrage with an unbalanced charlatan. Even their devoted friends in Kansas, including Governor Robinson, advised them against further association with Train. They did not make their decision lightly, nor was it easy to go against the judgment of respected friends, but of this they were confident, that with or without Train, they would estrange most of their old friends if they campaigned for women's suffrage now. Without him, their work, limited by lack of funds, would be ineffectual. With his financial backing, they not only had the opportunity of spreading their message in all the principal cities on their way back to New York, but had the promise of a paper, now so desperately needed when other news channels were closed to them. That train was eccentric, they agreed, and they also admitted that possibly some of his financial theories were unsound. They believed he was ahead of his time when he advocated the eight-hour day and the abolition of standing armies, but at least he looked forward, not backward. Susan had found him to be a man of high principles. She had heard him make speeches on women's suffrage that could be equaled only by John B. Goff, the well-known temperance crusader. Train's radical ideas did not disturb her. Her association with anti-slavery extremists prior to the Civil War had made her impervious to the criticism and accusations of conservatives. She was aware that on this proposed lecture tour, Train probably wanted to make use of her executive ability and of Mrs. Stanton's popularity as a speaker, but on the other hand, his generosity to them was beyond anything they had ever experienced. For Susan, there was only one choice, to work for women's suffrage with the financial backing of Train. Mrs. Stanton agreed, and as she expressed it, I have always found that when we see eye to eye, we are sure to be right, and when we pull together, we are strong. I take my beloved Susan's judgment against the world. Traveling homeward with George Francis Train, Susan and Mrs. Stanton spoke in Chicago, St. Louis, Louisville, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Buffalo, Rochester, Boston, Hartford, and other important cities where they drew large crowds, which had never before listened to a discussion of women's suffrage. Most of their old friends among the suffragists and abolitionists shunned them, for they had been warned against this folly by their colleagues in the East. The lively meetings raided plenty of publicity, complimentary in the Democratic papers, but sarcastic and hostile in the Republican press. Usually, women's suffrage got the headlines, 
but sometimes it was woman's suffrage and greenbacks, or train for president. Handbills, the printing of which Susan supervised, scattered trains, rhymes, and epigrams far and wide, and carried a notice that the proceeds of all meetings would be turned over to the women's rights cause. Susan also arranged for the printing of Train's widely distributed pamphlet, The Great Epigram Campaign of Kansas, with this jingle, so uncomplimentary to the Eastern abolitionists, on its cover. The Garrisons, Phillipses, Greeleys, and Beechers, false prophets, false guides, false teachers and preachers, left Mrs. Stanton, Miss Anthony, Brown, and Stone, to fight the Kansas battle alone, while your Rosses, Pomeroys, and your Clarks stood on the fence or basely fled, while woman was saved by a copperhead. Even more unforgivable than this to the abolitionist suffragists were the back-page advertisements of a new woman's suffrage paper, The Revolution and of women's rights tracts which could be purchased from Susan B. Anthony, secretary of the American Equal Rights Association. That Susan would presume to line up this organization in any way with George Francis Train aroused the indignation of Lucy Stone, who felt the cause was being trailed in the dust while susan and mrs stanton travelled homeward enjoying the comfort of the best hotels and the applause of enthusiastic audiences a coalition against them was being formed in the east all the old friends with scarce an exception are sure we are wrong susan wrote in her diary january first eighteen sixty eight only time can tell but I believe we are right, and hence bound to succeed. End of chapter 10